the Sustainable Investing Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, I'm Anne Mione, your host for today, and you are listening to the Aberdeen Sustainable Investing Podcast, discussing all things relating to sustainable and responsible investing. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Dr. Leslie Dickey. Leslie is the Chief Executive Officer of the Dura Wildlife Conservation Trust, one of the foremost species conservation organisations in the world. In 2017, she launched Dural's Rewild or World Strategy. In 2021, Dural's Carbon and Biodiversity Sequestration Scheme called Rewild Carbon. And they did that in partnership with their long-term Brazilian collaborators, IPE. Leslie is incredibly well qualified. She holds a BSc in Zoology from the University of Glasgow, a Master's in Biological Anthropology from Cambridge, She undertook a PhD at Queen Mary University of London, where she researched the behaviour and reproductive physiology of the fossil in captivity. In addition to that, she has a foundation in fine art from the Art Academy of London, and she's even managed to do a postgraduate certificate in behaviour change for conservation, and she got that from the University of Derby in 2019. Leslie, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. In the run-up to COP15 Convention on Biological Diversity and with increasing interest from investors, it's brilliant to have a conservation expert like yourself speak on this topic today. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the Dura Wildlife Conservation Trust and why the work you do is so important in helping to halt and reverse biodiversity loss? Yes, um, well, the Trust itself was founded originally as Jersey Zoo in 1959, but we were always different from the start. We were the first zoo to be founded solely for the purposes of conservation. Uh, That was from our founder, Gerald Durrell. And so that has always been at the heart of what we do as Durrell. A few years after that, in the early 60s, the trust itself came into being. And here we are, 63 years later. It was uh, our anniversary last week. We are very different from other zoos who do some conservation. So we are essentially, we're an international conservation organization that undertakes some of our conservation via our zoo, but we also have extensive field programs. We have a whole science program and we train young conservationists globally. So we are very much a practitioner organization. It's our Durrell team that's in the field. And so we're fully integrated in what we do. Um, We also have a significantly higher percentage of our turnover actually spent on conservation than other conservation organisations who are more predominantly zoos. And we think that's the most globally, in fact. So we really, you know, put our money where our mouth is, as it were. And the way we do conservation is a very hands-on approach. We employ techniques from the ex-situ, so the captive setting, and we deploy them in the in-situ or wild setting. And I think that's the reason that a lot of our projects have been so successful is that we are interventionists to a very high degree. Um, We make no apology for being interventionists. So we do a lot of uh, supplementary feeding in the wild when we're releasing animals. We do a lot of captive breed and release. Um, And that is less common for a lot of conservation organizations at interventionist level. But we also combine that with scientific rigor Now, we have a big team of scientists who work for us. And then we take what we've learned and we put that into our training academy to help train 
other people make other people's programs more efficient. Um, so quite honestly, what we're trying to do is make more conservation organizations like us and make them function like us. I think the other thing is that we are in it for the long haul when we work with species and communities. So some of our species we've been working with for over 50 years now. Uh, some of our projects we can envisage doing for 100 years. So we're very much committed. And we, ha we have to do that because nowadays the pressure on the natural world isn't receding, it's increasing. So it's accelerating due to a combination of a continually incre increasing global population, which brings with it increasing consumption and demand. So this is also the reason that we spend quite a lot of time in analysing how, how we are performing. Um, we analyse and evaluate our true impact. So we don't just report on activities or outcomes, we report on impact. Um, and we use uh, a tool called Dural Index, uh, which we made ourselves, and it's a, a counterfactual analysis program. So essentially, we analyse all the species we work with and we look at what would have happened if we had not been there, if we had not worked with that species, what would have been the likely outcome? And for an awful lot of the species that we work with, then it would have meant they would now be extinct today. So that, that's the, the, the basis of, what, of that counterfactual analysis. So in our work, what I really like about what we do is, is we, we, we use all kinds of technologies. So whether that's the, you know, using drones to track critically endangered species in marshlands in Madagascar, or really doing work around the science of nature, uh, connection for humanity. Um, nature connection is incredibly important because you don't get behavior change before you get connection. I like working for an organization like Doral that is very much a learning organization. We always want to see what we can do next, what are other people are doing in conservation and how can we apply it into our own projects. Brilliant, thank you so much. Um... Doro do such a lot of exciting work. So the next question might be a little bit difficult to answer, but is there anything that gets you really excited? What's the stuff that keeps you going when things are tough? I think what I find really exciting um, is at Doral the willingness to take risk in what we do. I would say that we are a, a risky organisation when it comes to conservation. We don't work on very big, notable species that you might think of in conservation. We work on things like the rarest duck in the world, the rarest pig in the world, the rarest kestrel, the rarest snake. So we work on species that um, have a high risk of failure. Um, and But that's exciting. That's an exciting organisation to work for because we know that if we don't do it, maybe no one will. So I'm also excited about how the team works. We have an amazing team working across Durrell, whether it's here at the headquarters in Jersey or across the world. And their commitment to continue working in conservation despite the challenges of the pandemic, for example. Um, a good case in point was the rescue of three highly endangered species of reptile from the southern islands of Mauritius that were uh, impacted by the really awful oil spill in the summer of 2020. Of course, the summer of 2020 was the first summer of the pandemic. We'd only just come out of the initial lockdowns. And we could have at that point said, you know, we don't know what's happening. We don't know about our own financial future. We don't know how we're going to deal with the pandemic. Maybe this is a project too far. But the whole team took the view immediately, well, but we can do this. 
If not us, then who is going to do this? So we've got the skills, we've got the experience, we're passionate about this. So let's do it and we'll work out the long-term details in the long-term. So what we're gonna do is act now. So that is a really exciting organization to work for. And when it's tough, you know that you've got a team of people around you who are just gonna go for it. There is a lot of hope that the second phase of COP15 will build stronger policy and targets that will actually halt and reverse biodiversity loss. But with disappointing results following on from the 2020 Convention on Biological Diversity and a failure to meet the biodiversity targets that were set out then, what do you think needs to be different this time at COP15? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question and not the answer people expect when I say yeah, I'm not really interested in the outcomes of COP15 because I think we could get in a situation that we had again with the Aichi 2020 targets, which we failed. You know, we set these ambitious targets off on the horizon, 2030. So we kind of push, we push it away. What we need to really feel is that the horizon is not enough. What we're doing right now, how do we set targets right now? They need to be more immediate. And for me, I think there needs to be really strong regulatory frameworks around how businesses operate and perhaps uh, how they should be penalised for destruction of nature. Uh, we've we've taken an approach of some regulation, but also of um, you know the 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 market trying to regulate itself. But maybe that's not enough anymore. I also, and you could probably say, well, you would say that, Leslie, but I think there needs to be planetary reparations in that businesses need to play for the global commons that they use. And that money should be given to organizations that can effectively um, combat biodiversity loss. There's a quote I like from Robert Kennedy that uh, said, GDP measures everything except that which is worthwhile. Uh, and I would really say that, you know, I think there needs to be potentially caps on wealth for individuals so that shareholders operate differently, so that they think differently. Um, I know that might not be a popular view for some people, but I, I actually do believe that. If COP15 really addressed what the, the, the key problem is here, which is our economies no longer work effectively in the 21st century. Our economies were built a certain way uh, centuries ago, uh, but they don't work now because essentially they're destroying the thing that they entirely rely upon, which is nature. So therefore, there needs to be a fundamental rethinking of how we run our economies. If that was the agreement out of COP, everything else would flow from that. Absolutely, there is a real market failure that needs to be addressed. Um, valuing nature is the key to resolving the issue. And to an extent, this has slightly started to happen, um, and that's through kind of concept of nature-based solutions and that is paying for through voltage carbon offsets the restoration of areas like forests or peatlands or seagrass meadows and what they do is they absorb carbon they act as carbon sinks and people are willing to pay for that service of nature um, but there are some concerns around that um, and the concerns are around focusing too much on just absorbing the carbon and not enough on the biodiversity itself um, can you explain a little bit more about Durrell's rewilding carbon project and how it addresses that balance in protecting nature and absorbing the carbon? Yes, it, we definitely considered long and hard about should we produce an offset mechanism to offer businesses around carbon. 
Um, and from the summer, we are offering it to individuals. But because we know offsets have a really mixed reputation, um, it can be a bit of the wild west out there in the voluntary carbon market. And of course, for us as a biodiversity focused organization, we could see that an awful lot of the programs currently offered just don't address biodiversity. They're, they're putting carbon as a standalone accounting unit, you know, a ton of carbon. And of course, biodiversity is not like that. There is no single accounting unit of biodiversity. So, you know, they can be viewed more as a pay to pollute type structure, and that we definitely didn't want to do. Um, so you can you can see programs where you can sequester carbon, but at the same time, they actually damage biodiversity. We see tree planting schemes that are more like monoculture plantations, which in reality don't sequester that much carbon. And they certainly sequester far less carbon than a rich, complex forest planting scheme. Uh, and they also completely ignore the issue of biodiversity loss or they actually um, exacerbate it. So the monoculture plantations that you often see in tree planting schemes, they're usually for harvest as well. So essentially, depending on what the use of that timber will be, you end up releasing the carbon again. So you could argue they're not actually sequestering that much carbon in the long run. So rewild carbon is much more than that, what you could call sticks of carbon approach. It's a, a program that is focusing on rebuilding a complex rainforest in the Atlantic rainforest of Brazil, what's called the Mata Atlantica. The Mata Atlantica is actually the older rainforest in Brazil. Everyone's heard of the Amazon, but the Mata Atlantica is even older um, and an amazing place. So in the Rewild Carbon program, instead of a monoculture, we've got over 140 different species of tree uh, that we're using. And those are connecting up, the forest corridors connecting up fragmented habitats. So it's also looking at the connectivity of the entire habitat itself. Um, so it's, it's very strategic, you could say, compared to just say uh, lines of a single tree species uh, that you might see in a plantation structure. Uh, we have a focal animal, and that's an incredible little animal called the black line tamarind, and it's a critically endangered monkey species. A uh, very beautiful little animal. You can actually see them here in Jersey. We're the only place outside of Brazil that you can see this animal. Uh, so we're very, very pleased that we are starting to build a breeding program as well. Um, so you've got the trees, you've got the species, but it's also working with our partners, IPE, uh, or IPE. Um, they are also working with local farmers promoting a sustainable agroforestry program. So we're also looking at the, the social needs of local people. Uh, we're, we're really putting that front and centre as well. So Rewa Carbon is what can be described as a high co-benefits carbon scheme. So it's carbon and biodiversity and social need and education and so much more. So when you compare that to a, a monoculture, they're, no, they're nothing like each other. Um, and we're also, you could say, strict when we're working with companies. We do spend time talking to them about their carbon reduction targets. And if we don't think they're actually going to reduce their carbon use, then we don't work with them. And we actually have turned down clients for rewild carbon because we, we don't want a pay to pollute scheme. We want a scheme that is helping galvanize action. If you could offer our listeners one piece of inspiration, what would it be? It can be something that you've heard before, a view that you have, um, just a different perspective. 
Well, I, I think one of the problems we face around things like biodiversity loss and climate change is it seems so overwhelming um, for people to think about. But I really love the quote from the 20th century social scientist Margaret Mead, who wrote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I've always loved that quote. Uh, I like it for lots of reasons. I like it because it's emphasis on us being citizens. Um, one one thing that I really find depressing in uh, media is the way that the public are described as consumers, as if that's the only thing we do, cons consume. And actually from um, psychology experiments, uh, we know that describing people as consumers, as opposed to describing people as citizens, you become more selfish in your actions if you believe yourself to be a consumer. So there's a real problem there about how we talk about the public. Um, citizens, I think, gives that sense of collective responsibility and uh, that we can do something, but of course it needs the first people to do something. It needs the people who will make the difference. Um, who The first people will say, well, that's not right or we need to change. It's like a, a nod to a bit of bravery. And I actually think we can see an amazing example of that in the world right now, not to do with biodiversity, but if we look at the uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, Volodymyr Zelensky is that thoughtful, committed citizen who, through the force of his own will, is inspiring an entire country. Um, I think Ukraine would likely not have withstood so much for so long without his determination, without his grit. And uh, whatever happens, for me, it's clear that Putin looks like and is a weak leader. And Zelensky is an example of real leadership. And uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting. So political leaders around the world are probably right now assessing what impact the Zelensky effect might have on their own electioneering. Very interesting. I do really like the concept of uh, it takes a small group of thoughtful and committed people to make real change. Very inspiring. So thank you for that. We always ask this question on our podcast. So um, I'm going to ask you if, for a book that you would suggest that our listeners would read. I do have a favourite book. And it's the book, it's, it's been turned into a film, it's been turned into a play. In fact, I'm going to see a new production of it uh, very soon. Every time there's a new production, I try and see it. Uh, it's quite an old book now, it's a work of fiction, um, but it says an awful lot about doing the right thing, and that's what biodiversity needs. And that book is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And it was published in 1960. It was pretty controversial at the time, and it actually remains a, a controversial book today. And if you haven't read it, it explores uh, how a society's attitude to race and race relations can be changed and challenges around how individuals and institutions had to examine their behaviour. But it's got this line in it that I think conservationists working today can really relate to, and that is real courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. And of course, that was talking about Atticus, the lawyer, um, knowing he's probably going to lose this law case, but he knew it was the right thing to try. And if we're really honest right now, we're winning battles in biodiversity, but we're losing the war. 
So that determination to keep going is something we really need right now. Too many vested interests are profiting from overconsumption and destruction of nature. Too many shareholders are deriving their personal, and I have to say often obscene levels of wealth from the destruction of nature, but they're not currently paying the price personally for the loss of nature. And if we're also honest about who is facing that cost first, then it's, it's not the wealthy, the global North and West, it's the South. So you could say there's an element of racism that echoes what's in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, at Durrell, even when we know a project is high risk, we commit to it anyway. And the interesting or odd thing is that conservationists tend to be optimists by nature. This has actually been subject of studies of conservationists against non-conservationists. We're, we're what's called situational optimists. Um, and I'm not sure how that's really explained. Uh, perhaps we're drawn to do the work we do because we're optimists, or perhaps it's because being an optimist is reinforced or become more optimistic because we can see some progress and we get to address these big societal problems as a, a sense of purpose in what we do. And for me, it's a, a really, truly wonderful thing to wake up each day and know that what you do has really clear purpose and it's something that lots of people don't get to do or they struggle to find through their work so I think we're lucky in that regard. Um, that's not to say that we don't have dark days or very sad days when something goes wrong when some days when the, the forest is literally burning down around us or we can't save a species that's that's really really depressing but we get to try and we get to do this amazing thing of saving the planet. And that sounds romantic. <laughs> and real conservation isn't romantic. It's about never stopping, like the Mockingbird quote. But I always feel that uh, a little romance is needed sometimes. Well, thank you very much for trying to save the planet. <laughs> I certainly personally appreciate that. So um, thank you so much, Leslie. And Really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks. You have been listening to the Aberdeen Sustainable Investing Podcast, a podcast relating to all things responsible and sustainable investing. Today, our focus was on biodiversity loss with conservation leader, Dr. Leslie Dickey. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You will find all our episodes on various podcast channels such as SoundCloud and Apple, as well as the Aberdeen website. Until our next podcast, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Investing Podcast, brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and for more great content, visit aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research.
The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.